Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Thanks for joining us today. We are uh, going to uh, dive into the interesting story told in the book Sisters of Mokama. Subtitle is The Pioneering Women Who Brought Hope and Healing to India. The author is Jyoti Thottam, who is the Senior Opinion Editor at New York Times. Uh, Jyoti Thottam, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, in 1947, with no knowledge of Hindi and the awareness that they would likely never see their families again, six nuns from Kentucky traveled to the small town of Mokama in India and opened the doors of Nazareth Hospital and, importantly, took in young Indian women as nursing students, offering them an opportunity to change their lives. One of those students, I understand, was your mother, and so you uh, you had this story, right. I guess, from your mother early on. What What did your mother say about this? So, you know, my mother would tell me the story about, you know, when she was young, she left home when she was 15, uh, very young, to go to nursing school. And she told it really as just sort of one of these funny family stories that she studied with these nuns from Kentucky, and they were very strict, but, you know, they uh, she learned a lot from them. So uh, it was really only much later when I became a journalist that I that I really wanted to understand, you know, both how she got there, but also how these sisters from Kentucky decided to go so far away, um, particularly at such a difficult time um, uh, in India's history. So that was really sort of what uh, got me set on the the path to do this research, was just to sort of figure out the rest of the story. And we'll loop back around to this later, but uh, maybe treat this briefly here. Uh, This really was life-changing for these young women, right, including your mother. It was, absolutely. I mean, you know, they were growing up um, in uh, villages in India in the 1950s. And, you know, uh, she was lucky in some ways. I mean, you know, they they were not as poor as some people in India. They had um, uh, an education and uh, plenty to eat and all of that. But, you know, these were very traditional societies. Women had to sort of conform to traditional gender roles. And they're just wasn't a lot of opportunity for uh, for young people to kind of see the world, to just see the world and experience the world outside their villages. So I think that's what this nursing school really did for them, is it, it sort of opened a door, and then it was up to them to decide to walk through it. And I think there were certain people, like my mother, who were just looking for a chance like that. So I wonder if you'd uh, set the scene, 1947, right, this, this era of... Uh... Uh, you know, end of World War II, uh, partition, uh, India's getting its independence. Mm-hmm. But but uh, I, I guess I hadn't fully known this, uh, just what a time of upheaval this was. Uh, one fact that you uh, state here, Delhi and Mumbai each had absorbed more than 500,000 refugees uh, about the, by the end of 1948. Uh, tell us mm-hmm. uh, about this time. Yes, I think it's something that, you know, even many Indians... Um, are aware of, but it's, you know, it's sort of fading from memory at this point, you know, almost 75 years on. Um, I mean, India had gone through through so much um, because of partition. I mean, it, it split the subcontinent into two countries. People had to decide in many cases, okay, you know, which side of the border were you going to live on? You know, Hindus and Muslims sort of uh, moved in you know, columns of of sometimes millions of people, often not knowing totally where they were going. Uh, It just created a huge amount of um, not only displacement, but also there was so much political uncertainty. You know, the 
uh, colonial government uh, was disbanded, um, but the new Indian government, it really wasn't clear at the beginning of that process what it would look like, who would be in charge, um, what the what the form of the government of India would really look like. So, you know, in that vacuum, in that uncertainty, you know, there were certain people who uh, it was extremely traumatic, of course, um, the, the loss of life, the loss of livelihood and home. Um, but I think it was also in some ways um, an opportunity for people to remake themselves to say like, okay, the whole world is in chaos and upheaval now. I think many of us um, may feel that way right now. You know, the, the world is going through a similar period. And sometimes that is a chance to kind of do something completely different and just, you know, uh, make a new life for yourself. Yeah, I'm reading here more than 20 million uh, Indians lived under direct rationing at the time. It's it just, uh, you, mm-hmm. talk, you talk a bit about the effects of colonialism, um, yeah, well. that's such a great question. Um, so this is something that I, I think I didn't fully appreciate until I started the research for this book. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the United States, so I've uh, lived and traveled and worked in India at different times. Um, and, you know, many parts of India, not all, but many parts of India do suffer from, uh, you know, a lot of health problems, poor health care infrastructure. But, you know, what I discovered in my research, um, you know, thanks to the the work of many scholars, but also public health researchers whose work I think is not well known, um, you know, all those hundreds of years of colonialism, um, there really was so little health infrastructure uh, that was built at that time. And you can see the effects of it um, on the health and well-being of Indian people, really like on their their bodies. I mean, there's been a lot written about the violence of colonialism, um, the oppression, the economic oppression um, uh, that took different forms. But something that I think is not fully appreciated is that it also damaged people's health. I mean, life expectancy uh, at the time at, in the early 1940s was only about 27, if you can believe it, for for adults in India. And a large part of that is because um, the mortality for children was so, so high. Um, I mean, children under 10 accounted for half of all the deaths in India at that time in the early 1940s. Um, And that was largely just due to a lack of basic health care and medicines that were widely available elsewhere uh, in the world, uh, but, but just not in India at that time. So that was the kind of the context um, the need that these sisters were were facing, and so they were able to do a lot simply by um, bringing in basic health care, basic skills, and then teaching those skills uh, to nurses uh, and eventually um, doctors in the hospital that they, that they built. So you say that um, in this era there was one doctor for every uh, approximately 6,000 people in India, compared to one per 1,000 in, in England. Uh, you talk about mm-hmm. uh, what, what the government did. Um, I just want to quote this sentence. This was one of the very few moments when someone in the government of India saw with absolute clarity what was required to change India for the better and how to do it and what it would cost. And you're talking about uh, Sir Joseph, uh, is it, I'm not, Bohr? Sir Joseph Bohr, yes. Yeah. He's, again, one of these um, figures 
who is not well known even in India, but such a pivotal figure in public health. So he led a commission um, just before independence doing kind of a, a really comprehensive survey of public health in India. And, you know, amazingly, like there, even to this day, there hasn't been uh, quite as comprehensive a survey done since then. And so he really laid out um, exactly what needed to be done in India at that time. Um, so it's not that there weren't, you know, skilled people paying attention to this problem. It wasn't that uh, it was some sort of like intractable, impossible hurdle to clear. Like it certainly, it certainly uh, was laid out exactly what needed to be done. Um, uh, but unfortunately, like there, there haven't been uh, that many efforts to actually do it. But uh, in in a small way, in this particular small town in India, that's exactly what this hospital was exa- was able to do was to deliver uh, just the kind of basic healthcare, skilled nursing services, um, and you know medicines and and really the kind of basic things that uh, Indian people really needed at that time. By the way, I just find these little details I find fascinating. Sir Joseph Bore uh, had retired in the 1930s, right, to the island mm-hmm. of Guernsey. Then World War II and the Germans occupied Guernsey. Uh, so I guess that's why he was back in India this, this time to be able to do this work. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, and it's interesting. There were so many people, uh, I mean, figures from history whom I encountered in, in this story, where something like that happened, you know, I mean, he had had a long career in the Indian civil service. He thought he was sort of, you know, living a quiet life on this little island off the English coast. Um, and then World War II happened, and, you know, suddenly he was displaced and made, a, a, I mean, the Germans occupied the Guernsey, and he had to leave, and he didn't really have anywhere else to go. So he went back to India where he had, um, you know, spent most of his career, and that was when he was given this commission to work on on public health. So again, it's just an example of the way that um, upheaval can somehow, um, you know, sometimes not willingly, but, you know, sort of force people into these really remarkable roles. Let's take a break. Um, When we come back, I want to start talking about um, these nuns in Kentucky and Appalachia. Um, who decide, well, we're going to go and, and help in India. And they, they end up establishing this uh, Nazareth Hospital. Uh, more uh, on Sisters of Mokamas, the book. Uh, Jyoti Thottam is the author. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're uh, listening to a fascinating story today. The book is Sisters of Mokama. The author is Jyoti Thottam, who is a senior opinion editor at the New York Times. Um, in 1947, with no knowledge of Hindi and the awareness they would likely never see their families again, six nuns from Kentucky traveled to the small town of Okama in India and a year later opened the doors of Nazareth Hospital. And they took in young Indian women as nursing students, offering them an opportunity that would change their lives. One of those women was writer Jyoti Thottam's mother. Uh, so Jyoti Thottam... Uh, Tell me a little bit about the this order in Kentucky. This is in Appalachia, mm-hmm. right? Uh, before we move them across to India, what, uh, what was life like there? Yeah, so I've I actually just came back from Kentucky. I've had the ch- a chance to visit um, uh, that small town of Nazareth, Kentucky, a few times over the years. 
So this is an order that was really founded on the frontier uh, of Kentucky at the time when Kentucky was uh, still very much a frontier. Um, I mean, the, the first nuns were really among the, the first Catholic settlers in, in that part of, uh, of Kentucky. Um, so that, you know, what they call their pioneer spirit uh, has really kind of uh, influenced and informed uh, all the work that they've done over the years. So, um, you know, they, they just sort of have this idea that, like, okay, they do what needs to be done. Um, they don't worry about, you know, sort of problems or obstacles. They just sort of push ahead and then and figure it out as they go. That's sort of the, the founding spirit. So, you know, in World War, uh, in the Civil War, in the Spanish-American War, um, they were out there serving as nurses, uh, as many um, uh, religious communities did. And, you know, that was sort of part of their tradition. But interestingly, you know, by the 30s and definitely by World War II, um, things had changed. You know, Kentucky was no longer a frontier. It had, you know, big prosperous cities. And the order itself kind of changed and, and had sort of turned its focus inward and were, you know, really sort of focused on the schools and hospitals that they were they were running in Kentucky. In fact, to the point where when World War II happened and there was an extreme shortage of nurses, uh, the government, uh, the, the national government asked, you know, pretty much uh, every nursing school, any place that had trained nurses to send them overseas. And this order said, no, no, I'm sorry, we can't. That's what the, the head of the order said, the mother superior at that time. No, I'm sorry, we just have too much work to do here at home. Uh, you know, unless it's truly an emergency, we, we just can't uh, uh, give our, our nurses. And interestingly, this was a big disappointment especially for many of the younger uh, nuns at that time. I mean, of course, they're religious women, um, but they're also, they were also young women with ambition, and they could see that other nurses, um, in fact, even some other uh, orders, had gone overseas to serve in the war effort, and they wanted to, to do that as well. I mean, that was, at the time, the most important, um, you know, certainly dangerous, but the most important um, work that you should do, you could do as a as a nurse or as a, a a religious person. So they were kind of disappointed. And when the opportunity came along to start this mission to India, again, this was a a, a chance for these um, young nuns to sort of do what they felt they were meant to do. This is a big undertaking, uh, I guess, adventurous spirit, uh, potentially dangerous, right? Certainly challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, another, another of this, these little details. So uh, I'm reading here that, um, I guess, on the boat over, they're trying to mm-hmm. learn Hindi. Um, one of them <laughs> tosses the book over overboard. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, this is a, one, one of my favorite details from the book. I mean, uh, there were six of those original sisters from uh, Kentucky, and they were all quite different. I mean, definitely they all had uh, reasons to want to volunteer for this mission to, you know, I mean, it's amazing to think about it. I mean, they were told, okay, you've been chosen for this mission. You've got three weeks, go home, say goodbye to your families, probably forever. And you're heading on a, on a ship to go halfway around the world. I mean, certainly none of them had ever left the United States before then. Um, And learning Hindi was their first big challenge. I mean, they were told to uh, start 
their study of language even before they left Kentucky. And, um, you know, as is often the case, uh, a couple of them found uh, learning a new language very easy and, you know, sort of picked it up very quickly. But uh, poor sister Charles Miriam really struggled <laughs> with the language. And there's a, a scene, um, and you know, this all came through in the letters that they wrote uh, home to their families and to the mother house, um, which I had an opportunity to uh, to use in my research. Um, uh, but she she there's this scene where she becomes so frustrated in her studying, and also watching one of the other sisters, Sister Anne Roberta, who somehow picked it up so quickly. She just was <laughs> in her frustration. She decided to throw her Hindi book uh, overboard. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, tell me, uh, tell me a bit about Mokama uh, of this era. Mm-hmm. So Mokama, uh, it's a place that at that time you might not even find it on a map. Uh, I mean, it was a small town. Um, there was a, not quite a village though. I mean, it, it sort of was built around a railroad junction. I mean, that's the, the main reason why that town is there, um, two railroad lines, uh, one running east-west, the other running to the south, meet there. And it's right along the banks of the Ganges River. Um, uh, so it had, you know, a few shops, definitely uh, lots of um, farms and villages around it. Um, but it's one of these places, like so many places in India, where, you know, there were a few upper-caste uh, landowners who really kind of... Um, uh, ran the show, who held pretty much all of the power, and um, everyone else was, you know, sort of working on their land and kind of subject to whatever um, whatever they decided. So this was the situation the sisters came into. They didn't really appreciate um, how much tension there was, I think, between um, the uh, these these sort of upper castes and and everyone else, and also in some cases between. Hindus and Muslims, because again, this was right after partition. So that was all kind of under the surface. So when they arrived, um, you know, they really had to uh, walk a fine line of trying to do their work. I mean, they felt very strongly in this idea that um, a hospital, particularly a mission hospital like theirs, uh, should offer the same care to anyone, you know, no matter what their religion, no matter what caste they were from. And that in itself was sort of a radical act at that time. Um, I mean, there were and there were definitely episodes where um, uh, the sisters came into conflict with that that power structure. Um, but they've had to they've had to navigate it over the years. Mm. Uh, tell me about some of the the, the original nuns. Mm-hmm. So there were uh, six of them. Um, three were in their twenties when they left. Um, Three were in their 40s. One was was just about 50. Um, uh, they were a mix. You know, the two were teachers, two were uh, nurses, a pharmacist, um, you know, one who was just a very ex- experienced uh, uh, administrator in the order. So they had kind of a uh, an interesting mix of, of skills. And that was um, one of the things that was so foresighted, I think, about the order in sending them there that, um, you know, of course they knew they would need um, women with uh, extremely good medical skills. I mean, they were highly trained nurses. One was even a a surgical nurse. Um, But they also needed, you know, people who could um, 
uh, to sort of figure out how how to run a mission and set up a hospital um, uh, in such a challenging place. Um, so they were they were incredibly resourceful. I mean, one of them, Sister um, Crescentia Wise, who I try, I like to think of her as like the the engineer of of the group. She was actually a nurse and pharmacist, but um, you know when they got there and saw that there was no running water um, in the town at that time, they they had to use a well, and so they uh, for a while they they had to have someone bring you know buckets and buckets of water from the well to the to the hospital and, you know, for all, everything they needed, um, they, you know, they wanted to set up a proper, um, operating room. So what Crescentia did was she first hooked up this sort of jury rig system, um, to drip running water from a, um, a big, uh, a sort of a bucket or tank uh, down a hose that so you would have like a stream of running water, um, so that the surgeon could scrub in, um, and then she also, again, kind of using her Kentucky ingenuity, set up a, a still uh, uh, behind the hospital to um, to distill purified water um, to use in intravenous solutions. So, I mean, there was really like nothing, it seemed, that no obstacle that they, they couldn't overcome. Mm. This was still not to produce alcohol, but uh, still to produce purified water. Distilled water, yeah. yeah distilled exactly. water, yeah. Um, so they, uh, they looked for a doctor, right? They finally found one. Mm -hmm. They did. Yes. And again, so that, that lack of doctors was very apparent to them, uh, right from the beginning. Um, I mean, there just were so few medical schools for this enormous, uh, population of, of people. So they were, um, you know, they knew they needed a doctor. They wanted to provide a high standard of care. So they wrote letters all over India, you know, sort of advertising for a doctor, trying to find one. Um, eventually, uh, the person they found, um, uh, a young man named uh, Eric Lazaro, he had just graduated from medical school. He didn't have any experience. Um, but again, he was, you know, from one of these families uh, that had been sort of broken apart um, in the years before partition. I mean, he graduated right at partition. He didn't, you know, he didn't have any family connections. He didn't have a job. He heard about this opportunity. He said, okay. He was estranged from most of his family, and he decided, like, well, okay, I will go to this um, sort of nowhere town and take a chance. And he turned out to be a very, very capable um, doctor and eventually um, became a surgeon in, in the United States. Um, uh, but so he was really just a, a wonderful um uh, sort of serendipitous addition to the hospital. And then later, um, the sisters brought in one of their own whom they, they trained as a surgeon. Um, so what what kinds of uh, illnesses were they treating? I guess a, a full range of anything you'd have in a community, right? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, although in that part of the world, tropical diseases were were quite prevalent. So um, malaria, dysentery, typhoid, cholera, all of those things were there. Again, you know, these are these are diseases that um, were often easily treatable um, uh, if you had the medicines. And that was something that the, the sisters worked very hard to procure and provide for people. Um, they also set up a, a, a really extensive um, leprosy clinic. Uh, again, 
by that point, you know, in the, the mid-1940s, there were drugs widely available, salsa drugs that, you know, could treat leprosy, but there was still such a stigma around it. Um, and so, again, these sisters, uh, in this case, Sister Crescentia, um, realized the need. Um, they saw that there were uh, patients with leprosy, you know, in the, the villages surrounding the area who could, you know, would certainly respond to treatment, but they were kind of living in isolation because of the stigma. And so they set up a clinic, not only not only a clinic to treat them, but also a very sophisticated kind of record-keeping system um, to uh, to keep track of when they were getting their treatment and, and coming in and uh, giving them identification cards. So, you know, they really felt like they were be- being taken care of. And you know, for anyone who's familiar with public health, I mean, that's a really sort of basic uh, public health uh, practice that they introduced um, uh, with that clinic, uh, really foresighted. And um, then beyond that, I mean, once they had the surgeon, once they had Dr. Wiss as a surgeon, they were able to do all kinds of surgeries. I mean, she encountered, um, in some cases, you know, uh, quite bizarre illnesses that she was able to to treat. I mean, sometimes there are common deformities, but things that, um, or injuries, accidents uh, that would happen. Um, but again, it was just uh, being able to provide basic care that was lacking until that point. You just joined us. We're talking uh, with uh, Jyoti Thottam, author of Sisters of Mokama, uh, subtitled as The Pioneering Women Who Brought Hope and Healing to uh, India. Uh, so tell me about, uh, this is an important figure in the book, um, one of the first Indian women to come seeking work. Her name is Celine. Mm-hmm. Celine Minge. Uh, yes, again, it was so fascinating to just uncover her story. So Celine is um, uh, a person whose name appears only a handful of times in the written record of the order. Again, you know, as I was doing my research, the order opened up their archives to me, the letters that um, the sisters had written home. I also, you know, found hundreds of letters that um, through the families of the sisters uh, they made available to me. Uh, and so they mentioned this name, Celine Min. She was there like almost just a few weeks after they arrived. She kind of showed up on their doorstep, this young Indian woman, again, like really just a, a teenager who said, okay, I'm here. I'm, I'm willing to work. Um, but there wasn't really very much ab- about her in the record. So what I had to do was um, it took me, you know, several weeks, but I sort of tracked her down in India on one of my trips there. Um, and she was by that point uh, in her 80s. She was living a very quiet retirement with her um, her daughter and and the rest of her her family. And uh, when, I, when I found her, she was just so... Uh, so delighted, really, that someone was interested in in this remarkable life she had lived. I mean, she had um, uh, not only grown up in a village, but in um, a forested part of India that um, is often called the tribal area of India. Like, these are communities who, um, you could say, they're kind of outside the Hindu caste system. They follow traditionally the sort of animistic um, religions. Um, you could call them the, the indigenous people of, of India. Um, so Celine and her family, um, they had uh, 
become Catholics generations earlier, but, you know, she had, um, again, during that period around World War II when there was such intense um, food scarcity and dislocation, um, she had been almost starved as a, as a baby. Um, but she and her mother had this incredible uh, determination and will for her to be educated. And so she managed to get through high school uh, but really didn't have any opportunities in, in this sort of forest village where she where she grew up. And so she practically ran away from home and kind of turned up on the doorstep of a couple of hospitals and then eventually turned up on the doorstep of Nazareth Hospital and said, here I am, um, I want to be a nurse. And eventually that's exactly what she did. She's really just um, a remarkable, tiny but determined woman. Well, let's take another break. When we come back, uh, our last segment with Jyoti Thottam, uh, Sisters of Mokama is uh, the book. We'll have more following this. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. If you just joined us, we're telling a fascinating story. In 1947, um, six nuns from Kentucky traveled to Mokama in India and opened the doors of Nazareth Hospital. Uh, in addition to treating the, the sick, they took on young Indian women as nursing students, offering them an opportunity that would change their lives. One of those women was writer Jodi Thottam's mother. Jodi Thottam's new book is Sisters of Mokama, the pioneering woman who brought hope and healing to India. Jodi Thottam, um, what if you tell a bit of the story of the these nurse trainees at a certain point? Mm-hmm. You, know, you get the hospital up and running. That's an incredible challenge. Um, why did the uh, nurses decide to essentially uh, begin a nursing school, nursing training anyway? So, yeah, so this is something that, again, uh, once they started the hospital, uh, it was very apparent that, you know, the sisters alone, as skilled as they were, simply couldn't handle um, the number of patients who were coming in. I mean, they needed more uh, trained and skilled nurses. So at first they tried to just recruit nurses who were there in India, um, but there were so few of them. And again, because there had been such a lack of nursing education in the country up until that point. So they said, okay, well, I guess we'll have to train our own. And so they, you know, they decided that's exactly what they would do. They uh, set aside a little bit of space in the hospital for classrooms. Uh, the doctor and the sisters uh, started the first classes. Celine Min, whom we just talked about, was one of the very first um, to raise her hand and say, yes, I want to be part of this this nursing school. Um, but again, they had to, they, they, that wasn't enough. They couldn't just sort of count on people walking in. They Put out the word really throughout um, the Catholic, the very the small but um, uh, strong Catholic community in India at that time, looking for people who might be interested in studying nursing. And so, you know, that call went out through word of mouth, really just through parish priests, or um, uh, you know, one person would tell someone else who would tell their cousin, and then and then uh, eventually that you know that word sort of reached the ears of these young women uh, in small villages in South India, where there is a a kind of large Catholic community. And they were just sort of hungry for that opportunity. Again, um, people like my mother 
they, you know, grew up in these small villages where there were very few opportunities to do anything other than um, simply get married and have a family. Um, but it was a time in Indian history, I mean, in the the 1950s and then into the early 1960s, where things were changing so much. I mean, this was, uh, it's an old civilization, but uh, a new country at that time that was trying to decide, like, okay, what are we going to do? What what kind of country are we going to be? We have to build all these new things uh, ourselves. And so that spirit, I think, really drove some women like my mother to kind of look around and and take those opportunities when they presented themselves, and that's exactly what she did. Uh, at one point, the sisters instituted an English-only rule, and you write, the English-only rule mm-hmm. collided with one of the most sensitive issues in the first two decades of Free India, language. Uh, inevitably, mm-hmm. the, you just, we're going to have issues of culture, right? And here's, here's a big one. Maybe we talk about that. That's Yes, exactly. So, you know, again, um, these American women, when they came to India, uh, they knew, of course, as missionaries, that they would have to learn uh, the local language in the place where they were going, which, uh, for the most part, was Hindi, and so they did that. But I don't think they fully appreciated uh, how diverse India is. I mean, there are uh, at least a dozen or more official languages and many more unofficial um languages. And so these young women whom they brought in as uh, nurse trainees, they were coming from a completely different part of India where they speak a completely different language. And, you know, they had studied Hindi and English in school, but it certainly wasn't their first language. So they sort of turned up at this nursing school and, you know, uh, naturally they preferred to speak their their mother tongue when they're just at home uh, or in their dormitories. They thought, of course, that's what they would do. But these uh, these nuns, they were they were strict. I mean, they were certainly of that time and place. And they thought in their way, well, you know, uh, these young women, they need to learn Hindi. They need to learn English properly in order to get the training that we're trying to give them. So they imposed this rule that even in the dormitories, like even uh, on their off time, just, you know, sort of spending time with their classmates. And, you know, these were such young women. I mean, they were mostly just teenagers that they were forced to speak English. And the nuns would sort of patrol the hallways of the dormitory, listening for anyone speaking uh, Malayalam, the, the language of South India that most of them knew. And, you know, when I did my interviews with uh, both my mother and, you know, so many of her classmates, this was one detail that almost all of them pointed out as something like, of course, they had many rules. Um, it was a school of young, you know, with young women far from home. But that was the one that they remembered as particularly cruel. And, you know, not surprisingly, it was the one that these young women uh very vehemently pushed back against. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, I think it it changed the way the order operated. It changed the way the nursing school operated. And it really sort of forced the order in some ways to confront, um, you know, what are what kind of community do we want to be? If we're going to work in India, are we willing to sort of change and adapt to the community and the traditions and the culture here? And and, you know, eventually they did that. It was slow at some points, and there were certainly conflicts. 
But I think going through that process um, pushed them to make changes that I think were, were really kind of ahead of their time. You write uh, very movingly about, uh, you know, migration, belonging. We, you know, today we have many mm-hmm. refugees, right? Um, yeah, this, this sense, you write, once you have left your home behind, where do you belong? So we have these sisters from Kentucky moving to India. Your parents, you know, doing the reverse, uh, India to United States. We have, uh, mm-hmm. in this story, we have uh, these young nurse trainees moving across the subcontinent. I want you to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, this this idea of leaving your home behind, and then where do you belong? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is something that I, I thought about so much in the writing of this book. Um, because, you know, when you think about migration and why people leave, we tend to think of it in terms of these very big uh, forces beyond a uh, human scale, you know, big uh, wars and political conflict or now, you know, climate change or, um, or economic opportunity that, you know, these are the reasons why people leave their homes. And, you know, of course, I think that's true. I mean, we're all shaped by these big uh, historical forces. But I think something that came up um, so often, both in the letters, the record, and the interviews that I did, when you actually talk to people about why they were leaving, you know, like, why did this person leave their village because of all these uh, forces swirling around them? And this person stayed. Like, what's the difference between someone who leaves and someone who stays? And I really started to feel that it's, on some level, it's it's an individual thing as well. I mean, there is just a certain spirit in people that pushes you to leave your home. And once you've done that, you know, once you've made that first big leap, leaving your village behind and going to a nursing school a thousand miles away or, you know, leaving Kentucky and getting on a ship and going to India. Once you've made that big leap, I think there's an impulse to to just want to keep going forward. Um, And somehow, you know, you're just driven. I mean, I I saw this in in so many of the stories that that came up in the book, where you're just, you don't look behind, really. You know, you don't look to the past in the same way. Um, You're always moving forward and trying to figure out, how can I make my home in this new place? Like, it may be completely different to me, but I'm somehow going to make my mark on it and make it my own. And that was something that I thought was, um, you know, really profound in thinking about why people move. I mean, if you look around the world, there are millions of people on the move right now and, you know, when I, when I think of them, I imagine to myself that there are probably, you know, in those big crowds of people, uh, young women, just like the ones in my story, who, you know, who eventually will make lives for themselves that are just completely different from whatever they were leaving behind. Uh, so the Nazareth Hospital still there? It is. You know, I, I visited... Um, there most recently in 2018, just, you know, before the pandemic, as I was finishing the research for this book, um, it has uh, it has changed a lot over the years. Again, um, this is a community of uh, of religious sisters. Uh, they, you know, it's most it's almost entirely Indians now who run that that hospital and that convent. Um, 
But they were never really tied to the idea of, well, you know, we built a hospital and therefore we just have to keep the hospital going no matter what. I mean, what they wanted to do was serve the community. So uh, whatever the hospital needed to do, they were willing to adapt to. So um, in the 80s, when um, the AIDS epidemic came, you know, they they introduced that kind of care. Um, you know, there are other hospitals doing sophisticated uh, surgeries and, and inpatient care. So they, they really sort of shifted uh, the work of Nazareth Hospital to, again, focus on basic health care, village care, hospice care, which is, again, something that uh, very few people will do. And then, you know, during the COVID pandemic, um, although they had uh, pretty much shut down their inpatient care by that point, the need was so great that they, they saw what was going on in the community. And um, again, one sister who was also a doctor, um, you know, for a few months during the worst of the, the pandemic for India was treating um, thousands of patients uh, over the course of a few months. I mean, working really just around the clock, but that's always been their spirit, you know, to, to sort of do whatever needs to be done. By the way, uh, COVID's just been absolutely devastating in, in India, right? Several countries, India included. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I know. It's been really sort of, uh, it's been difficult to watch from from far away. Um, but yeah, again, I think it, it sort of points out um, uh, the lack of sort of basic health infrastructure still in many places. I mean, it's it's much, much better than it was in 1947, of course. Um, and India's vaccination campaign, I think, is uh, has been quite successful. But again, the lack of basic health care in so many places, especially uh, in small towns and villages, is, is still quite acute. I want to read this paragraph. Uh, this is Jody Thottam. Um India has taken many turns inward and outward in the 75 years since independence. And although it remains a proudly pluralistic democracy, that tradition seems increasingly fragile. Um, You know, this, that could be worthy of an hour of itself, uh, maybe just two minutes (laughs) (laughs) on on that uh, statement. Sure. So, you know, one of the other things that I I wanted to explore in this book, um, because, of course, this is, uh, largely a, uh, a story about a community of Christians in India, um, Christian missionaries, but also um, Indian Christians who then uh, went to this uh, part of North India where the need was so great. And um, it's not a story that I think is uh, is widely known in India, um, the fact that there are so many Christians and, you know, it's especially at this time, um, India is going through a period where um, religious minorities are under quite a lot of pressure from the Hindu majority. Um, there are certain, you know, political parties and certain forces within Indian society right now, which would like to, you know, in a sense, re- redefine India as almost like a monoculture um, a Hindu upper caste culture. And that's simply not what India is. I mean, it's such an incredibly diverse place. Um, and I think it's really important, uh, you know, if you go back in India's history, and again, not that long ago, this is only about going back about 75 years. Um, this was a small town where there were um, people from all different kinds of religions, um, 
not just Americans also. I mean, there were uh, different points in the story. Um, uh, people from uh, Russia make an appearance. There was a sort of Russian steel plant that was built. Um, I mean, India had this tradition of kind of welcoming people from different parts of the world, um, you know, where cities in particular were places that um, no matter what your background, you could sort of make your way. And I think that tradition is really under threat. So um, I hope that uh, in reading this book, um, that people who might have one idea of what India is or should be might reconsider some of that. Well, it's a fascinating book. The book Sisters of Mokama, the author Jyoti Thottam, has been with us uh, the program today. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, really fun. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Many cultures, one sky. Humans have always been fascinated by the moon and have used it for planting, navigation, astronomy, mystery, and a nightlight in the sky. Each spring, indigenous cultures move the camp circle to higher ground, women gathering early berries and roots and repairing their lodges. Men fixed and created weapons and resumed hunting. Children enjoyed the warm weather after being confined for winter. And full moons are named for changes of season and weather. In northeast Maine, the Kikis culture, the May full moon is known as the field maker moon. For the Algonquin in the Great Lakes region, moon is Quanamakesos, the moon when people weed corn. For the Chippewa, it's the blossom moon. For the Cree of the northern plains in Canada, frog moon. And the Arapaho, the full moon in May is when the ponies shed their shaggy hair. Cultures from all over the world enjoy and interpret the night sky. It's a common heritage. Also during the first space age, an exploration of the moon by the Apollo program. The Apollo 15 mission was on the moon from July 30th to August 2nd, 1971. While Al Worden kept an eye from orbit in the command module, Dave Scott and James Irwin got to roll around on the first lunar dune buggy or rover. Going for a few rides from the landing spot, precariously tilted on the edge of a crater near the Hadley Rill to the Hadley Mountains. In his book, To Rule the Night, James Irwin, who attended Salt Lake's East High, conveys how amazed they were by the soaring heights of the mountains of the moon. Also impressed with the geologic strata at the Spur Crater, Irwin relates different shades of brown, light green, and a top layer of white. Hmm, green on the moon. Also from orbit, Earth's moon shows shades of gold and copper to battleship gray and white. It depends on where you're looking from and the angle of the sun. You can see some contrast from your own backyard, or the mountains, or the canyons, or the sand flats. Stay tuned for more on Apollo 15. You can also see a moon rock from the mission at the Gateway Planetarium. And taking the Skywatcher spaceship out a little further to Mars, NASA and JPL's Perseverance rover watched as the tiny Ingenuity helicopter took off for a third flight and did a little bit of exploring on its own. And the Perseverance rover racked up a huge milestone by converting carbon dioxide into oxygen. This could point the way to future human exploration of Mars and other places. And could that be useful on Earth as well? Explore images from Mars, the Moon, and other fun things on the Skywatcher Leo T Facebook page. Also bidding a smooth flight to one of the pioneers of Gemini and Apollo programs, and we celebrate the life of Michael Collins, who died on April 28th. Collins was involved in the groundbreaking Gemini program and had the best view of the angle of light on the moon as the command module pilot for Apollo 11, the first moon landing. He loves spaceflight and orbiting the moon with good humor and wonder, and he inspires us to look up, look around, and get a little lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. With transliter stations statewide and streaming live, you're listening to UPR.
systems are gone. Are you sure? Control is not convinced. But the computer has the evidence.